You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, happy St. Patrick's Day, by the way, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is former governor and current president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Same to you. Thanks for having me. You came on the podcast just about a year and a half ago. We had a wonderful conversation about your career, but it basically ended uh, on your experiences in 9-11, and you very graciously agreed to come back on. You mean the podcast ended or my career ended? <laughs> uh just just the former and the one thing that was one of the most talked about aspects of that podcast by the way sir was no one had really heard you talk about what had happened that day Um, but there were two questions from that podcast so you've agreed to come on to talk about your run in 2004 and your eight years as governor but there were two questions i want to ask very quickly about that i didn't ask last time and i kicked myself and they're both very very harmless Uh, first one is Richard Luger famously ran for Senate in 1974 and lost to Birch Bayh. One question I always wanted to ask was, and, and you managed that campaign, you were involved in that campaign. Why didn't he just wait? 74 was a terrible year for Republicans. Everybody knew it was going to be a terrible year because of Watergate. Was there any thought or talk of him just waiting to run in 76 against Vance Hartke? He'd be out of the mayor's office and not take on Birch Bayh, who was enormously popular. I'm not sure I was privy to any such conversation. There must have been. Uh, I was not the manager of that campaign. I mean, uh, I was, uh, you know, 23 or 24 years old. I uh, was given a what turned out to be a substantial role in it. But uh, the decision to, to run would have been one he made with uh, people more senior than I. And um, but he was uh, he was ready uh, to uh, head for uh, other challenges after. Uh, what was uh, after six years, seven years as mayor. And um, I'm not sure that when he decided to run that it that things looked to, to be as bleak as they wound up. You're right, it wound up being a terrible year. He got the, the highest percentage of any Republican challenger in the country, but it was uh, a little over 1% too, too few. Yeah, he barely lost that race, which is incredible considering his, his brand at the time was Nixon's favorite mayor. The um, uh, and he was running against a highly uh, talented, incredible uh, political figure in Birch Bayh. Um, 
Now, I remember one, uh, one evening, August the, was the 8th maybe, of 1974, the night that uh, President Nixon re had resigned. And uh, Governor Bowen invited um, Mayor Luger, the candidate Luger, and a, and a few of us went over to the governor's office. Might have been the first time I was ever in a governor's office, I'm not sure. And uh, on that night, um, uh, I remember uh, my old friend Ray Rizzo, the late Ray Rizzo, saying, uh, uh, "This is the uh, uh, this marks the end of Birch Bay's career." Everybody it was optimistic that with Nixon, President Nixon, out of the way, um, that uh, there'd be more of a level field for the fall campaign. Turned out to be uh, not to be true. The American voters were ready to punish. Uh, uh, the Republican Party, uh, and they did. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, there briefly, there was there was a sense that maybe uh, it would be uh, more of a one-on-one -on -one contest. We should note that two years later, Richard Luger defeated Democrat incumbent Vance Harkey by a significant margin in the 1976 campaign. The other question I had that I didn't ask is you wrote your book, Keeping the Republic, and the forward was written by George Will. Uh, and I should also say that both Mitch Daniels and George Will have signed my copy of Grant's personal memoirs. <laughs> how did you meet George Will and how did you get to be such good friends with him? I guess I met him initially um, on um, the Brinkley Report, when it was the Brinkley Report, this week with David Brinkley, I guess. He was a regular panelist, and I was a, a guest uh, uh, two or three times during the uh, Reagan White House years. So I didn't get to know him well. I'm not. He had no reason to pay any special attention to me. But um, I remember I wrote him a fan letter uh, before that when I was working for uh, uh, Senator Luger, and uh, he was early in his career. I think he had already won. The Pulitzer, all uh, maybe. I wrote him a fan letter and uh, never got an answer. Uh, but uh, <laughs> later on, um, I uh, he occasionally would would call for a, a, a comment or an interview or something. We got to know each other, and I do consider uh, us friends. I think he would say the same. And um, he, he married a woman that I knew well, um, good friend of mine uh, from uh, the Reagan years. So uh, I do believe he's one of the great talents, great thinkers, obviously one of the most uh, uh, exceptional writers. One, one needn't agree with him in order to appreciate his virtuosity of the English language. It's just unmatched. And uh, so uh, I think he's a, a genuine national treasure and it'll be a huge loss when we're not able to read him on a regular basis anymore. So you'd put George Will on your debate team? If if he were on my debate team, the rest of us would, uh, you know, take a seat on the bench. Wouldn't be needed. <laughs> so let's fast forward. Thank you for answering those questions. Uh, you've been involved in politics for a long time, late 60s, 70s, different levels, Reagan administration, senatorial campaign committee, on and on. Uh, and we're backstage, as I recall, because I read a book about the 1988 election by Jules Whitcover and Jack German that has you backstage for the Quayle-Benson debate. So you've been involved in all sorts of things. 
but there's a big difference between being involved and being on the ballot. And in 2003, you made that decision to run as a Republican for governor of the state of Indiana. Could you take just a minute to let us know your thought process to make that leap and, and how much pressure, and I say that lightly, how much pressure did you get to say, look, we've lost four in a row, we need you? First thing to say is that uh, I hadn't been anything more than a very occasional volunteer for about 15 years before that happened. Um, I'd left uh, uh, Washington and, and I thought politics, you know, gladly in 1987 and um, went off to do other th things. Uh, the most important years, I always said, most valuable and uh, important years when I was stretched the most and learned the most in any job were the years at Eli Lilly and Company, a great, great organization that um, I was so lucky to uh, be involved with. And um, so it was only when uh, the phone rang and I found myself in a short period of time back in the uh, in public life because of the uh, assignment in the Bush administration that led to finally being a candidate. I had never entertained the notion. If I ever had, it had been many, many years before. And uh, well, I guess I, I can tell you this story. Um, in 1988, after... Congressman, I'm sorry, Senator then Quayle, I became vice president. I was approached by the then governor about being nom about being appointed as his replacement. Outgoing Governor Orr was um, uh, going to make that appointment before he left. Incoming Governor by, uh, of course, from the other party, so they wanted to make the appointment um, while it could stay in the Republican Party. And that was as tough a decision as I'd ever uh, encountered. At that point, that seemed like a dream job to me. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in the Senate today. You know, I wouldn't go at gunpoint. But uh, at that time, uh, that's uh, I had been working there for a great senator just a short time before that. And he anyway, would have stood with you when you got sworn in. I mean, the, the senior senator stands there with the new senator to get sworn in. That must have been an amazing thought to have. Senator Lugar well, standing guess, right there with you. Uh, yeah, you know, I probably didn't get that far. Uh, <laughs> the the whole question we had, Shay and I had moved home with with girls at that point, two, four, six, and eight. Every reason we came back to Indiana to raise them was was working out. Uh, it was time to uh, provide, uh, make sure, uh, provide for their future and so forth. And, and uh, so it was as, as it was. A, I don't usually take a lot of time to deliberate, but I had to, to uh, chew on that one for a little bit. But anyway, um, a lesson uh, maybe we all learn at some point is some of the best decisions in life are the things you decide not to do. And I'm awfully glad I didn't do that. Uh, and um, so that was, at that point, I thought, well, any notion of ever holding elective office is uh, gone. But 15 years later, um, while I was working in the White House, just as you said, there were a number of people in Indiana, very restless, some on a partisan basis. Let's find someone who can win. Really, more people just restless that the state was sinking or going nowhere or being left behind um, in a changing economy and um, 
in a uh, uh, fast-moving world. And uh, that you say pressure, I'll, I won't call it pressure as much as encouragement, but there was a lot of that. And uh, uh, we wound up deciding to run. Now, the thought process, uh, I will say, went like this. I was trying to decide anyway, quite apart from that, uh, when I could leave the administration in good conscience. I Having, having served in, in one White House, I had a very firm view as the third year uh, arrived that uh, a person in a senior job owed it to a president either to at, at, at some point like that, either to stay a full four years or to leave then and uh, not, not to leave a, an important job vacant uh, in a, in a reelection year or in the fourth year of a term. And um, I, I remember Ari Fleischer and I had exactly the same conversation. When's the, when's the right time? Each of us decided to leave at two and a half, about two and a half years in. And uh, I, I remember I had marked off for myself three or four items. If they were successfully completed, I would feel that I could go get my honorable, ask for my honorable discharge, as I used to put it. And all those four items uh, were successfully completed. They, a, a budget for the next year, um, uh, a supplemental appropriation to fund the war, the, the actual war in Iraq, not the occupation to follow, and um, you know a couple other to-do items. And um, when they all those boxes were checked, well, then I indicated to those people who had organized the effort to talk me into it that. Uh, I'd probably be able to do it to honor all the rules and abide by all the restrictions. I didn't um, make a final decision or say that until I was driving home on a Saturday, the 7th of June, I think 2003. And I called Bill Osterley, who was the chief troublemaker and said, okay, I said, uh, it's a go. I'll give you a month. Uh, uh, I want to see my family and get some things squared away. I'll give you a month to set something up and then we'll hit the road. And that's how it happened. Do you remember any advice Senator Luger gave you? He had to be one of your first calls. I'm guessing, Hey, Senator, I'm getting ready to do this. He was just very encouraging about it. Um, and uh, I think, I think all along the way uh, shared some excitement that, somebody he had trained and raised um, might, uh, might, might find a way to be useful in that way. Was your candidacy harder to sell to Hoosier voters or was it harder to sell to the Daniels women? <laughs> uh, probably the latter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but, uh, but they adjusted uh, and uh as, as I've recounted elsewhere, you know, I said to my, my wife, who, thank goodness, is not politically uh, obsessed or minded, uh, um, probably one reason I wanted to propose to her as opposed to, uh, I, I knew uh, uh, so many wonderfully talented women who, but that's, but government politics was their primary interest. And I think I'd have gone crazy if, you, uh, if life was one dimensional that way. 
So anyway, um, you know, I said, look, uh, there's no rule book for this. Uh, you don't have to go. I'll, I won't ask you to go to a single event or do a single thing you don't want to do. Anything you want to do, great. But uh, I, I will never lean on you uh, to do that. And uh, for the succeeding 10 years, I think I kept that pledge. We never, I never did. Lieutenant Governor Joe Kernan was thought to be a shoo-in to run to be the Democrat uh, candidate for governor in 2004. He rather uh, surpri uh, famously surprised everyone, dropped out. Then in September 2003, uh, current Governor Frank O'Bannon passes away in Chicago. Joe Kernan then decides to run for a full term. Did And we've lost Joe Kernan since the last time I saw you, and I know you had tremendous admiration for him, and maybe speak to that too in a second, but did Kernan's getting back in the race change things for you, for your team? Well, it was a big jolt. Um, I don't remember the exact chronology, but I think by the time I, certainly by the time I had decided to, okay, let's try this, it was, uh, everybody understood it to be an open seat election. And, you know, no incumbent governor had ever been defeated in the history of our state. So um, when suddenly there uh, was an incumbent governor, and then he decided to run. It was, I, I know it was a moment of great jubilation in the Democratic Party mm -hmm. because they, uh, I think they thought they were now a lock to win again. And uh, they were within their rights to think that. I mean, Joe Kernan was a very admirable guy with a great story and, and um, obviously a lifelong politician, very skilled at, at the craft. But uh, uh, it was, I think we were able to make the case nonetheless that it was uh, Indiana needed uh, a brand new start. Whose idea was RV1? And do you think that made a difference in the campaign? It made a huge difference. Um, it, Osterley and I had were, were like-minded about the kind of campaign. I said, I said to him, I said, if we ever do this pool thing, I, I, I've got some firm ideas about how to do it. I had, even though I never expected to be a candidate myself, I had peddled to a variety of Republicans, the very same, some, a notion like that. I said, listen, um, each party has to labor under a stereotype. The Democrat stereotype is they'll spend you blind, tax you broke. Uh, they, you know, their, their candidates have to go uh, try to counter that. The Republican stereotype is you're not connected to ordinary people. You don't understand their problems or care too much about them. And I said, so don't whine about how untrue or unfair that is. Go prove it. It's just a special burden you have to carry. And I could never talk anybody in much into doing it. Um, you know, little symbolic sort of temporary listening tours and things like that. And what I had in mind. Plus, I was an unknown first time, you know, no name first time candidate. So anyway, um, I had, I had told Osterley if I ever, if we ever do this thing, I'll I'll do it full time, because we're going to need to. And here's the idea. Now, um, I think the RV was a kind of a common a mutual idea, but he was brilliant about certain things, letting people sign the RV, mm -hmm. and designating it the mobile campaign headquarters. That was that was Bill. Remember, Bill was uh, had given uh, had created Angie's list, uh, not too far long before that, such a fabulous talent, one of the great, really important business and civic people of our state. Um, and uh, 
you know, so I think we were, uh, I can't remember exactly who came up with what, when, but uh, we were very aligned in our, in our thinking that, that that would be the sort of campaign that would probably succeed. And as I later found out, as I quickly found out, it was absolutely the kind of campaign to get a person ready to serve. So many problems that I learned about that we then went to work on um, that I uh, might have uh, not found out about or not nearly so soon. Um, so many, uh, um, so, so much deepened my understanding of the variety, the diversity of our state and the different problems everywhere. It was, uh, it was great preparation. The, the, uh, the other person I knew uh, who had done anything remotely like it was Lamar Alexander, hmm. who had been governor and later senator in Tennessee. And I told him early on, I said, I think I'm going to do this thing. And here's what I'm going to do. And he said, that's exactly right. He said, it'll probably make you a more successful candidate, but it will definitely make you a better governor. And that was exactly what happened. I've said this when I've been on political shows or talked to reporters or just in general conversation that one of the reasons that Eric Holcomb is so successful as governor is he's probably traveled the state more than any political figure I know, given his various jobs, working on your campaign, being state director for Dan Coates, his campaigns for governor, his campaign for Senate. Is it just that critical to be in Whitley County and Allen County and Du Bois County and hear someone at the cafe say, Mitch, this is what I deal with. This is what my business has to deal with. Someone's got to do something about it. Of course it helps. And I, and I, going back to your, I guess, original question, um, just as a matter of, 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 of living up to the idea that we're, everybody matters, no, every place matters. Um, that was really the essence of the whole RV experience. And it, I, by the way, um, um, it, it, leaving aside that it had to do with politics, I, I believe it was one of the most complete and, and successful branding efforts mm. ever, if, you know, uh, because the, the, uh, the whole uh, theme, the whole ethic that there's no place too small to go. There's nobody um, uh, whose problems we we don't want to hear or, or, or we don't want to that we don't want to connect and empathize with. I think uh, not only prepared me better, but I hope it communicated to a lot of other people and, and maybe motivated a few other people to, to to get involved with a with an endeavor like that that really wanted to extend it uh, everybody in the state in every corner of the state. You mentioned a few minutes ago, you called yourself a no-name, first-time candidate, but your running mate was a respected name, multi-time candidate, and state Senator Becky Skillman. How important was her presence and counsel and just amazing personality and presence uh, to your campaign? Nah, she was great. Uh, to this day, if, if if the phone rang right now and, and, and Becky was calling, we'd say, hi, partner. I, I would never let anybody call her my, you know, number two or lieutenant governor. I, I, I said, she's got to be a full partner. Well, uh, Becky was obviously an appealing candidate. Uh, um, uh, we, we realized as a tactical matter that uh, we had a great opportunity to win the election and really change the state 
uh, south of, of Route 40, um, where uh, uh, the historical uh, politics were heavily democratic, but there was every reason we thought that, that you know, a hillbilly like me uh, uh, couldn't, um, you, you know, if we worked hard enough, build some real um, uh, strong connections down there. And of course, we're running against the big city mayor from up north. So um, not at any disadvantage there. And Becky was from down there. But, you know, very appealing. But the most important thing was not what she brought to the ticket, although I thought that was important. I thought it was very important. Indiana needed to elect a woman um, to uh, one of its two top state offices. I never really considered, uh, honestly, any any men. And um, but uh, the most important thing was she knew the legislature very well. I had never spent a day there. Uh, she had great respect and um, credibility and good relations on both sides of the aisle in both houses. So she was just an indispensable, first of all, uh, sounding board for all the legislative ideas. I mean, you know, as you may remember, we had more than probably any uh, buddy around there had ever seen. And, uh, and, and, and also a great sense of, of how to move those things through the legislature. And so she was so valuable, such a trusted full partner in what we did for all eight years. You mentioned at the start of the interview that the big difference between being involved in campaigns and then actually um, um, making the leap yourself, obviously Eric Holcomb's done so successfully, but you set yourself up to be criticized fairly or unfairly. And, and sometimes there's collateral criticism, which doesn't usually work. And I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned it just a few minutes ago, I think the most riled I have saw you during the campaign, the first campaign in 2004, was the criticism of Eli Lilly and your association with it and the permutations of that. Did that shock you or did you just say, look, that comes with the territory and if I can't take that, then I shouldn't have put my name on the ballot? I was uh, upset by it. I thought it was uh, unfair. Uh, I thought it was, uh, um, uh, I didn't want my many, many friends at Lilly or that great company dragged into the uh, debate. Um, now, honestly, the way I remember it at least, uh, it, it was a, it turned into a real opportunity. That is to say a sort of jujitsu situation in which we turned it back against the other side. I remember, uh, you know, I, I made all my, the own, our own commercials. I don't mean I made them, but I, I decided what we would say and usually spoke for myself in most of them. And we made one in which I said, I never thought I'd see the day when a governor of Indiana attacked Eli Lilly and company, which I think many people probably nodded to after all that company has meant in terms of jobs, opportunity, uh, the economy of the state, not to mention the fabulous philanthropy that that success has uh, um, brought to Indiana. So I thought it was not just unfair, but a mistake of whoever advised uh, Joe Kernan to, uh, to uh, attack the the company or me through that through that attack 
but um, uh, you know, um, it was a long time after that before I really got enough scar tissue not to let things like that upset me. I, I finally got there um, and realized that as I've shared with so many uh, young people who ask about things like this, that um, you just simply have to accept it's a cost of doing business that if you uh, accept a job or seek a job uh, that has that sort of uh, visibility uh, that, uh, and if you do anything with it, if you make change, you're absolutely guaranteed to come in for unfair, untrue, in inaccurate attacks, and you can't do much about it. You, in most cases, you'll just never get it corrected. Or if you do, most people will never hear the correction, and, and you just have to um, live with the fact that, uh, that some people will be led to believe things that aren't true, uh, and that uh, that's just uh, goes with the territory. What's the line? I think I heard you say in a speech one time, dogs don't bark at parked cars. Yeah, that's a line of a, 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 a woman, a farm woman up in Delaware County told me, you know, we'd, uh, by definition, again, you make enough change, every change bothers somebody and uh, sometimes, and that sometimes the, just the volume of change was too much for some people. I understood that. And I don't remember what we were being attacked for at the time, but she said, that, that's what she said, Mitch, don't let it bother you so much. Dogs don't bark at parked cars. And that became a little slogan I repeated to a lot of our folks. I said, you know, we are not parking the car. This, this state has too many challenges and too many uh, opportunities uh, for us to, to uh, slow down. We're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. And for years, starting in 2004, you could not go to a St. Patrick's Day event without dozens, if not scores, of folks wearing their green. What was it like to walk up on the podium or the stage for an event and see, and we'll focus on, on the younger generation, to see hundreds, if not thousands, of young people wearing that shirt? And what did that represent to you? It was it it, uh, it meant that we were achieving exactly our number one goal. Uh, we uh, we we tried to speak every day of those eventually ten years to the future, and that meant young people. We tried very overtly to uh, build the campaign as much around them as we could. And uh, uh, I remember on on primary night of two thousand four. Um, I said that we're not going to be in Indianapolis. We're going, we went to Bloomington and there was a big group there of uh, young people who had associated with our campaign. And that's where we celebrated the first of the first uh, election success that I'd ever had. And uh, many, many other examples uh, like that. The, um, I remember uh, one time after a uh, summer parade, maybe 4th of July, anyway, summer parade. I think we were either in Shoals, I think it was in Shoals, and, uh, or Lagodi, I believe Shoals. And uh, when it was over, I mean, we had young people all over the place in those green t-shirts you're remembering, and handing out things to people and our, our, our program uh, of, of proposals. And I remember saying to the, my buddy Ben, who 
was drove the RV <laughs> was on the road with me all that time. I, I said, uh, Ben, uh, where's the where's the other team? And there was one little wagon with some old grouchy looking fella on it. And he said, well, that's it. That's it. And I said, you know, this thing may just work out. You know, even though not that many young people vote, a lot of the young people in those shirts weren't old enough to vote. But I said, there's just this just feels like something that could work out. That was the I, I remember that was the moment when it dawned on me, you know, we might actually make it. And that was, you know, midsummer of 04. I still have my my man, Mitch. I, I still get coasters. I, you know, there's there's still um, I'll still <laughs> hear from people once in a while. My shirt uh, got torn, or I outgrew it, or you got any more? And I you know we we've been out of production for a while here. I know you signed the uh, my man Mitch coaster one for my son Andrew, who's at Purdue, and one for my daughter Anna, and they they don't use them. They're up protected in some closet somewhere, so they're eventually going to be worth money. I'm guessing the way they guard them. You defeated Joe Kernan in 2004, wrote a very nice uh, tribute to him in your inaugural address, which I quoted on Facebook when Governor Kernan died. It was a very gracious passage. But then you immediately got to work. And in getting to work, you have to keep what you think is working and then move on with the ideas of your own. One thing I want to ask you about particularly because I just experienced it. The transformation of the Bureau of Motor Vehicles under your administration is is almost incomprehensible to someone who didn't experience the old system, quite frankly, the old system under both parties. Is that your favorite grassroots success story? It's one, it's certainly in the uh, up there and, and um, f- for uh, a couple of reasons. Um, one was that uh, um, I had my eye on that from the very beginning. I, I told our folks, those who came together in that administration, I, and uh, um, I said, "Listen, we're going to everything I've seen around here needs fixing. <laughs> Every agency, this 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 place is not just broke; it's broken. And um, but but uh, we're going to place first emphasis and start in two places." the Department of Revenue and the BMV. Why? Because those are the two that touch the most people on a regular basis. And I said, if we can ever fix those, people may gain a little confidence that the gang can shoot straight. They may listen a little more closely to our next proposal uh, to change something. And so, yeah, we got on it. It's, it's a great story. A Harvard Business School case has been done on this transformation. I'm not making this up, Robert. I got a letter to today, March 17th, 2021, from uh, from a citizen who mentioned at the beginning before they got to the point of their letter, it sure is better to, you know, you fix the BMV. I always said to be on, that's my, my tombstone, say he had four daughters and fixed the BMV. Um, no, it was, it was a great labor of love. You could measure, this is one you could really measure, and we measured everything, you know, my old comrades will remember me quoting that old Walmart line, if you're not keeping score, you're just practicing. And we measured everything, but the BMV was very subject to measurement. How long was a person in the, how long did it take somebody to get in and out of a branch? What percentage had to go to the branch at all? Or could we help them do it through the mail or on the phone or eventually on the net? 
Um, and uh, what was the customer satisfaction rating? We had three different ways to measure it, including secret shopping. Uh, so, um, yes, it was it was a joy because you could. I, I had it a dashboard on my de uh, computer to desk. I could watch on a weekly basis uh, how our folks were getting it fixed, and it did have that effect of of, of people going, "Holy cow! They they finally fixed the worst." agency I've ever dealt with. And, uh, you know, it, uh, there's an international award for such things, and we won it two or three years back to back after our folks were done. Yep, it's, it's a favorite uh, a story. We made some mistakes along the way. They took the clocks down for some reason at one point. That's a dumb move. We, we pulled the trigger on the, first, on the big computer overhaul uh, too soon. It, well, they didn't have all the bugs out, and they had to back up and and do it again in a couple of weeks. So there were there were glitches. Um, it was a mess. You know, we had to close 40 branches. I mean, they didn't have enough business to justify. We were, and, and we took that money, and that's how we modernized the rest of the branches and the computers and all that business. That was a huge step forward. But you talk about a political battle. The one branch we closed was in Hope, Indiana, and the leader of the Senate you know, that was in his district. He was not pleased. So it was, uh, you can tell by the way I'm rattling on that it was a, uh, uh, it was important to us and, and it's a very fond memory. The rollout of the COVID vaccine reminds me a lot of the stream under, under Governor Holcomb reminds me a lot of the streamlining of the BMV. It's been an, an incredible success from just an operational standpoint. I've had my first shot in 15 minutes, start to finish. It was unbelievably efficient. If there's a lesson from our day, and I think there is, that applies to this, and again, like most good lessons, you, I probably learned it the hard way the first time, but I know I preached it to now Governor Holcomb, simplicity. When you're trying to make something, government's not very good at things. Even uh, after all the improvements we've made, all the great people we brought in, it's not easy to do things at the scale of a state of close to 7 million people. Uh, and all the geography we have. And um, as I frequently told people, the second or third best answer, if it's simple, is probably a better idea than the perfect answer if it's too complicated to um, bring off in, in a competent uh, way. That was clear. I'll give uh, the best example I can give you there is property tax reform. We had some very elegant, very complicated. Um, ideas about ways to make property taxes more affordable and more fair. But in the end, what do we go with? One, two, three. One percent of the value of your house, two percent of the farmer rental property, three percent of a business. Um, and um, people could understand it. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, it, it generated enough support. We were able to pass it in a in a divided legislature. And um, but again, there's a, bit, there's, a, there's a premium in my mind and virtue uh, to simplicity. And I think you saw that in the way they rolled out the vaccine. Well, that was the second grassroots governance question I was going to ask you. Let me ask you a third. And that is uh, maybe the most underrated, perhaps. And that is the healthy Indiana plan that has transformed the lives of so many Hoosiers who thought that healthcare was unavailable to them, unaffordable, and perhaps even 
made them feel it was unnecessary. How important was that for you to come up with a new way to ensure and protect Hoosier's health? It was very important, and I, uh, I'll cite uh, two reasons that go beyond the, the, the central reason, which you just mentioned. We had too many people just outside the Medicaid line who uh, didn't have other options for, for, uh, for health insurance. But the two things that were most important about it to me were, first of all, I thought it was something we could do on a bipartisan basis. Again, we had a divided legislature at that time, and I was looking for something that I thought Democrats could be enthusiastic about and we could join hands on. And that happened. Uh, it had leadership and sponsorship from, as I recall, people like, uh, you know, Senator Vice Simpson, uh, who disagreed with so many of the changes we were making elsewhere, but really cared about extending uh, uh, health care protection to, to more people. So uh, that was one, I thought, important feature. And then the other was the whole nature of it. I, um, I the, I'll remember very clearly the group came in, uh, having been asked by me to you know, show me a plan that can uh, extend health insurance to the, to the uh, near poor, as people used to say. Um, I said, it has to be a plan that pays for itself. We're not going to commit the state to an open-ended entitlement program that might eat the budget, which has happened already at that point to some states. So what they came back with had that feature. We raised the tobacco tax and that set the limits of how many people we would be able to provide for. But the other thing I had told them was, I, I want a plan built on personal responsibility, not a plan built on paternalism and condescension that you know, th th these poor people can't make a smart decision for mm -hmm. themselves. So we're gonna have a very prescriptive, we're gonna tell them what they can and can't do and should and shouldn't. And the first thing they came back with just didn't meet that test. So I threw them out. I said, you didn't listen. I, I, want, I want HSAs for poor people. Mm -hmm. I want to empower poor people. That means they have to put in a little something of their own so they feel some sense of responsibility. But I want them to be able to decide on first dollar spending. And that to me was the most important uh, feature and the most important lesson about the Healthy Indiana Plan. Because after we had two or three years experience, guess what? Those who said that low-income people couldn't make smart decisions were completely wrong. They uh, uh, they would they were seeking second opinions. They were avoiding emergency rooms unless it was a real emergency. They were uh, uh, getting uh, they were asking for generic drug prescriptions, uh, not just accepting a more expensive um, medication. And uh, to me, that's the most important thing. It uh, it demonstrated that we need to respect the dignity of everybody. And, and, and uh, help those uh, who need it to be able to make their own decisions, but trust them to make good decisions when they do. I feel exactly the same way, of course, about uh, the schools people choose for their children. A politician and leader you may uh, name, you may recall, uh, referred to the Indiana toll road lease as, quote, the best deal since Manhattan was sold for beads. I don't know if you remember who said that, but I remember that I said that, but you left off the last line. I said, except this time the natives won, <laughs> which we you did. Know, looking back, uh, tell us just for a minute about what you thought when you opened the envelope, because it's been reported several times. It's kind of lore. And when I was, I was communications director at the Indiana Republican party, when the toll road do, 
deal came through and is one of my favorite things to talk about because the interest alone was adding hundreds of thousands of dollars a day to the amount we received. But it's been reported, and I think you've said that the, the amount in the envelope was a little bit more than you thought. Um, what did you think about the deal then and now? Uh, we uh, had a little pool. Nobody bet any money, but there were only there were four or five of us in the in the room to, on a Friday afternoon. The bids had come in. Um, the, uh, the the shortfall, the, the highway infrastructure shortfall, had been estimated at uh, maybe I'm going to say two and a half billion dollars. It turned out it was really much more than that. I mean, you really can never um, spend everything you'd like to on infrastructure. But um, I, I had told myself, if, if the number in that envelope is two or more, we're going for this. Because at least it will solve a big part of the huge infrastructure def, um, deficiency that Indiana had at the time. And I, I can't remember what the pool was, except that the high, est, the high guess, somebody guessed, I think, three. And when we opened it up and it was four, 3.99 I think. Uh, nobody knew what to say for a minute, except, you know, look again. <laughs> and um, it, it was, it was an astonishing moment because um, I knew that in, in uh, that Indiana now could address in a way no state in America could um, this very serious issue. And it was so valuable to us. We're the crossroads of America, for goodness sakes. I always said, it, so, so, uh, so dependent and with so much opportunity for to be a center for manufacturing and goods can reach other places quickly, a center for logistics. And this is all these things, of course, have, have happened. And uh, so it was, it was a breathtaking moment. It really was. And um, uh, you know, although it was perfectly understandable why some folks were confused at first and there was a lot of purposeful and I mean, people trying to confuse others about it, but at this remove, um, I, there's, there's simply no denying it was one of the great breaks any state has ever got. Now, Indiana, CNBC votes us best infrastructure in America every year. And it traces right back to that moment, $4 billion, no, no borrowing, no, um, no taxes, $4 billion cash. And we, we didn't let any of it get siphoned off to non-capital um, uses. In other words, we balance the budget of the state the old-fashioned way, reduce spending till the books, till, till the lines crossed. Um, every uh, penny of that went into roads and bridges. Um, let's see, uh, we uh, uh, resurfaced half the existing roads, state roads in the state, rebuilt a third of all the bridges in the state, that's thousands of them, and then, of course, built all those new projects that, um, that made us... Uh, 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 stronger for the future. It was so gratifying. It was a wonderful thing uh, to work on and to see happen uh, before your eyes. We are just a few days removed from springing forward. As you walk around your house or your office and have to change all these clocks, do you ever wonder, what the hell did I do this for? <laughs> oh, you know, I still get a couple of those letters every year. I have to, I have to remind people you know, or, or I guess they didn't catch it the first thousand times I said it. <laughs> Number one, I don't care about daylight savings time. If they wanted to repeal it nationally, that'd be fine for me. I didn't care what time zone we were in. You know, I used to say, you can put us on 
on uh, you know Samoan time for all I care. What I what we cared about in a in a very large package aimed at getting the economy of this state growing. What I cared about was being out of sync, being the weird state that nobody knew how to deal with. And people thought that was just, you know, sort of quirky, but it was much worse than that. If you traveled the state the way I did, it was hardly a day I didn't run into somebody who had, you know, the, 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 the shipment of bricks got here an hour after the workmen went home. And I had to pay for the crew to stay overnight somewhere. Uh, the, my conference call got ca uh, canceled again because three of the people misunderstood what time it was in Indiana. Um, you know, Robert, um, I was told uh, later on by people in the airline business that when they were deciding years before on hubs, you say, why Cincinnati or St. Louis? Why not us? Indianapolis would have been perfect for a huge airline hub, except for that goofy, you know, <laughs> approach we took to, to time zones. So, you know, uh, this time every year, somebody says, man, we get rid of it. That'd be just fine with me. I just wanted to be in an interconnected, wired economy. Um, you know, we didn't, I, I didn't want people having to adjust themselves to us twice a year. And, and uh, it wasn't the be all and end all, but it was part, it was not immaterial. And it was definitely part of, of Indiana's economic comeback. I'm going to ask you a question. It's and it's a prelude to another question, but they're interrelated. Was there ever a time that you brought an important issue or decision home, and ended the night by saying, "Darn it, Sherry, why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> oh, let me see. I mean, believe me, I, I that happens all the time. Just not probably in, in terms of uh, more in terms of family life as opposed to. Uh, uh, something we did in the in in public life she has great great common sense uh she has a better sense of perspective there were certainly times back to an earlier question when i'd be all riled up about something and and uh she would uh uh call me down or get me to stifle myself um but uh it was always fun going on the radio or tv after you had let someone out and i had to well, Mitch Daniels talks about a new era in politics, but he just said this. Rob, should he have said that? And my answer was, well, of course he should have. You know, Sherry was quite the um, uh, popular radio guest. In fact, she had, uh, she, uh, I, I just think, set a great standard for first ladies. Uh, first of all, she, uh, I said, find things you want to do and I, I'll support whatever. So she wound up, as you probably know, the, the, really the patroness of the Indiana State Fair, didn't miss a day in eight years, knew everybody who took the tickets, knew the people on the tour bus, knew everybody at the fairgrounds, and they knew and loved her. Um, she was also quite popular on radio shows. She had a great uh, series called Sherry's Chores, where people would call in the show and say, uh, I do this for a living. I make uh, candy by hand. I... Uh, uh, I'm a bartender. I'm a, I work in a school cafeteria, and she'd go out and do that job uh, for a day there. Uh, uh, but uh, no, I mean, she had her things, and I had mine, and we might compare notes, but uh, I sure didn't tell her how to handle the state fair, and 
<laughs> he generally wasn't interested in uh, in the in the nuances of stuff we were doing every day. I mentioned that because you really had, and it's and it's validated my question perhaps by a comment you made a few minutes ago about wanting a woman having Becky Skillman as your lieutenant governor as your partner but it didn't end there Jane Jankowski Betsy Burdick Lauren Mills Seema Verma on the political side of course Jennifer Hollowell an amazing cadre of female leaders no nonsense smart got things done I remember emailing Betsy Burdick about an unemployment claim from someone I know she hadn't gotten her money yet it had been three months and 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 this person got a call within 30 minutes what was it like to be or what is it like to be a mentor to sort of a new generation and a different a different look of republican leadership and governments governance i don't know if i describe myself that way although uh, uh, I, I will say that uh, particularly uh, the young people who were part of our team. Uh, it was just great to watch a lot of them blossom and grow, and they're now holding leadership positions in business and some in public life still. And uh, I'm deeply proud of all of them. Yes, there were some, we had uh, uh, probably an unprecedented number of, of, of women in, in top jobs, and that, but that's the world we're in and should be in. And I think we did our part to make those opportunities possible. I hope, hope everyone we could. Um, no, I mean, the central theme of those years, I tried to speak to it so many times, was we wanted to get Indiana in a go mode, in a change mode. I talked about being green, <laughs> not easy being green. And um, uh, the, the people you just mentioned, they all had that spirit and they're all still uh, uh, restless wherever they are. They're trying to make this a better place, uh, make, make positive change. And we, we wanted to find and, and encourage people uh, everywhere, in every walk of life, you know, Indiana can just cannot settle for being middle of the pack, middle of the road, mediocre. Uh, we, uh, we, we proved in many, many respects that uh, Indiana could be a leadership state, and I hope that we always now will uh, expect that of each other. And I should also mention my state party a friend, Kara Hodges, who worked for you and was yeah. remarkable. How important is it to have a prominent political opponent, a foil perhaps, and I say that in a nice way. You had one, I think, and Speaker Pat Bauer. Was that fun for you? Oh, well, now and then. Um, uh, I do think, um, honestly, that uh, in in some respects we were – we were fortunate in, in our opponents um, because um, in, in too many cases, I think they presented a, um, a, a real contrast that was favorable to things we wanted to do. We were presenting ourselves as people of change um, and uh, uh, the uh, other side, whether it was personified in in uh, people like Speaker Bauer or um, uh, others of their uh, identified people, folks who represented them on television and uh, so forth. Um, I think 
we're all, we're so uh, generally negative and uh, uh, hostile to change that it it helped us honestly the the comparison. I, I think I remember saying on election night 2008. I think I remember uh, opening up by saying before we get to the business, I have some uh, the latest scores to report, and it was you know. Uh, yes to no zero, tomorrow to yesterday zero, forward to backward zero, you know, change just one, big in the state of Indiana. And I do think that that uh, those who were in the opposition at the time too often played into that a little bit by, by seeing, seeming relentlessly negative and, and uh, made us maybe look a little better than we deserved. I remember you standing on the podium holding up the uh, green ditch Mitch bumper stickers saying, yeah, there's a big sale on these <laughs> right down the street. Yeah. You bargain hunters can, <laughs> yeah, can find these. Yep. The two most remarkable political achievements of my lifetime, although I, I was old enough, I was born in 67, old enough to remember quail beating by in 80, a huge upset, but that was a big Republican year, obviously two most remarkable political achievements. Greg Ballard winning re-election in 2011 as mayor of Indianapolis, three years after the remarkable candidacy of Barack Obama. But in that same vein, in 2008, Barack Obama won Marion County by 107,000 votes, biggest margin in the history of any county ever. But Mitch Daniels won Marion County by 50,000 votes. That is a remarkable testament to a political turnaround and a deliverance of governance that made people want you back. What did you think of that election, that campaign, and that particular result? And did you, did you smile when you drove wherever you were driving in Marion County and you saw the Barack Obama sign next to the My Man Mitch sign in so many yards. I did. I mean, I think the result, it is stunning. Um, um, these days it would be stunning at all because uh, uh, people seem to have retreated to their partisan corners and there's, there's less. Uh, we used to think that campaigns were about the ticket splitters and now there seem to be fewer of those people. But in that year, I mean, I, it meant a lot to me that people who uh, uh, wanted to as they saw it, uh, important change at the federal level. We're willing to uh, also vote for continued change here at the state level. And, um, and I thought it spoke awfully well, uh, does to this day, to Indiana voters. I mean, President Obama carried this, the whole state too, while we were setting a record on the other side. And so I thought it spoke well of Indiana voters that they could make uh, um, individual uh, and, and, and uh, discerning choices like that. So uh, yes, and at, because it has been my home since I was a child, of course, it mattered a lot to me to succeed in Marion County. I, I, that might be the last time a Republican carried it for um, any statewide office. And uh, when we did in a huge way. Uh, so I really hope the day comes back when people do take a little more individual look at candidates and candidacies and and uh, 
don't simply uh, make assumptions about people based on a label or, uh, uh, you know, some uh, the latest uh, slander over social media. Or, um, but uh, that, that may be wishful thinking, but, uh, you know, 2008 is not that long ago. Whose idea was the Star Wars ad in 2008? And could you describe that ad? Are you talking about the one that simply was, was one uh, factual piece after another? Yes, sir. Well, I think the idea was, was probably uh, uh, mine or mine and Bill's. There, there, was, there were a whole lot of facts that uh, even then you sit, a lot of people didn't know, couldn't know that there's a news media had not necessarily, you know, carried them all. And so we made a long list of those and thought um, that uh, an ad just packed with, with facts um, might be um, uh, an important building block in the campaign. In, in the end, we had so many, we had to make two of those ads. <laughs> Uh, the first, the second one started and said, because 60 seconds wasn't long enough for all the change we brought. And then, but, but uh, Kim Alfano, the wonderfully talented woman who executed all our ads, uh, came up with the, that piece of music. And, uh, uh, you know, I've been asked uh, for those to send people those ads as recently as maybe a couple years ago. They're incredibly memorable. And um, I guess maybe some folks wanted to, uh, emulate them elsewhere, but I thought they were highly responsible because we, we there wasn't any sloganeering, there wasn't any um, obviously no disparagement of anybody. It was simply positive facts um, to try to uh, fill in gaps that people might have and in their uh, before they voted, and uh, and also to build the, the overall impression, which we thought was fair, which was. This is, we have brought a ton of change and um, hope you like it. Um, and if you give us, if you hire us again, we'll, we'll try to do some more. And uh, I think they were very effective. I remember the late Matt Tully, who was a really uh, a terrific uh, political journalist, um, you know, probably uh, disagreed with us more than, than not, but still very honest and, and good journalist. Matt Tully wrote that, and he told me, he said, when I hear that music, he said, I, I usually leave the room when a political ad comes on. When he says, when I hear that music, I run in and watch it. He said, I can't help myself. It was very compelling. To that point, you're reelected and with record, record performance, November 4th, 2008, against uh, former Congressperson Jill Long Thompson. How hard was it, or was it not difficult at all, to keep the momentum going in a second term. So many, whether it's presidencies or, or, or governorships, the second term justice makes you think, man, you should have perhaps stopped after one. You're a student of history. You worked for presidents. You had to know that that was a danger. How did you keep it going? Well, there was nothing that um, I spent more time thinking about. We were absolutely determined. You know, I remember saying to people, uh, you know, lame ducks can still fly. And, um, and, and I think, you know, it's fair to say we did. I, I will always be, um, feel good about the fact that some of the biggest things we did across all eight years happened in year seven and year eight. Now, granted, we'd had a huge success in, in the uh, 2010 elections and captured uh, the house, which we had not had 
for four years and, uh, and, uh, and, and large majorities. So the, the table was set, but of course that's, we'd worked on that. It didn't happen by accident. And, uh, you know, we, uh, year seven and year eight were years of huge change for Indiana. And I just thought that was awfully important. You know, uh, somebody I knew and admired, uh, Jeb Bush gave me, and I wish I could find it. I can't believe I have lost it. One of these little atomic clocks to sit on the desk and it counted down to the last second of our service. They had set it to count down right down to the moment of, of a successor being inaugurated. And it was to remind you that, that uh, we, need to we needed to work every day, every minute on something that might make the, the state stronger and better. And, um, you know, I think everybody who um, seeks another tour in public office should stop and ask themselves that question. If, if we're successful, will we, do we have a plan? Do we have a, the, the, um, uh, the, the will to, you know, keep on moving as opposed to um, just being a caretaker or, uh, or uh, riding out the time. It was just a few years before. Well, I, that's not true. It was 1988 campaign came up. John Mutz, Evan Bayh. There was a big announcement with Subaru. Thought it was going to be an amazing boost to Mutz's candidacy. And if I get my history right or wrong, please correct me. Turned out not to be. Turned out to be a, a boomerang effect. But under your watch, the Honda announcement in Greensburg, how much of a shot in the arm was that to you at a time when you were looked perhaps with greater skepticism, Hoosiers were looking at you going, I'm not sure we signed up for this. And then you have this Honda announcement that seemed to change, be a launching pad for what came afterward. Well, I don't know about a launching pad, but it was, uh, but it, it's up there in memory with the uh, moment you asked about the opening of the, of the toll road bids. Um, and it was, it was unusual because I was traveling to Japan uh, every year. Uh, I'd done a lot of business over there in my Lily days, even in my Hudson days. And um, I knew that relationships mattered and, and, and demonstrating a sincere interest in a valued customer mattered. And, um, you know, you think about that Subaru thing, it, it was, they, they, they beat up, they beat up John Mutz over it back in the late eighties, you know, that uh, little bit of xenophobia, mm -hmm. um, um, in that, in that uh, campaign, I'm afraid, but things had changed over the intervening years. And, um, uh, uh, we, uh, I was over in Japan calling on, um, Subaru and Sony and other important companies who had invested in Indiana. And um, uh, I would, uh, with the whole courtship with Honda, which the every state in the union was competing for that plant. And uh, it had moved very quickly. And I got the call while over there. They're going to make the decision. There'll be a phone call to the finalists at uh, was the mid-evening Tokyo time morning, I guess, in Indiana or Ohio, where they were headquartered. And I was all alone in my hotel room in Tokyo, waiting for that phone call. And it was a very emotional moment. 
I get a little emotional thinking about it now. I picked up the phone. It was the guy who'd led the project. He said, uh, we've met, the board has voted, the Honda's coming to Indiana. And it wasn't necessarily any boost later. What it said was, it's working, we're arriving. We are now the kind of place that great companies are willing to come and want to come and invest their money and hire people in. Uh, it was uh, um, a huge moment in that, in that respect. And as I say, one that uh, I'll never forget. I, uh, it had to be very, very secret. I, had, I literally snuck away. We had a 50 people or something on the Indiana delegation. You know, we're all over there hustling, trying to you know, get the next job investment. And uh, we made up some pretext. I snuck away from the group the, the, the next day, um, flew overnight to LA um, and uh, a, a private plane, an Indiana businessman came, picked us up, picked me up. Uh, and I, I got to uh, the law firm in Indiana. There were a couple of, uh, of uh, problems yet to solve. They needed a uh, they needed a, a new uh, exit off of 74 or something like that. And uh, I got there eight minutes before the meeting started coming from Seoul, Korea, actually at the time. And uh, uh, the next morning we were down in Greensburg making that announcement. Uh, unforgettable experience, but a, but a really important historical moment for Indiana. When was the last time you've been to that plant? Oh, it's been a little while. I've still got my jacket, you know, my white Honda jacket, the red letters and my name on it. Uh, I'll tell you what I have in my basement. Uh, there's that I learned at the, at that, um, announcement, uh, of, a of a Japanese custom, the Daruma doll. And it's a paper mache doll. Looks like one of those, um, uh, you know, dragon heads that you see sometimes in a Japanese, uh, celebration or parade. And when there's a big a collaboration, a, a big partnership between two entities or organizations, um, when they when you start, you color in one eye, and when when the thing comes to fruition, you color in the other eye. And so I went back to the plant, you know, several times, I guess, but we went back on the day of the groundbreaking, after they'd built it, and we colored in the the other eye. I've got that. Uh, I've got that doll. It's a treasured memento uh, that only uh, that I have to explain because no one else would understand what it means. In your career, or is there now, or has there ever been a Mitch whisperer? Oh, lots of them. I mean, uh, I mean uh, starting with Sherry, of course. Um, but. Um, you know, I do have friends who, who claim that I, uh, one of them says I have an inner circle of one. I don't think that's quite fair. Um, but um, I've been so lucky, I'll tell you, what I've been so lucky is to have people that I worked for over the course of time who were spectacular uh, role models and advisors. And of course, it starts with Luger, but... Um, but the two presidents and uh, um, great leaders at Lilly, Randy Tobias, uh, Sidney Terrell, people like that. And um, if you're fortunate enough to, to uh, work in proximity to people like that, you, uh, you don't have to be whispered to necessarily. You just 
watch and learn and try to imitate it. We end the Leaders and Legends podcast with the same five questions to every guest. However, since this is Mitch Daniels' second trip on the podcast, we've come up with five new questions. Governor, are you ready? Go. What was your first car? 1971 Vega, aluminum block, bright red, ran it into a tree. <laughs> Number two. If you could witness any sporting event or game in history, what would it be? Lake Placid, 1980. Now, if uh, as 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 justice should have required, if Gordon Hayward's shot had gone in, or if he'd scored on the previous possession, when uh, and Butler Duke, uh, 20 what 11, um, that would. I was there, but I would I would go back to that over and over again. But uh, since uh, justice was denied that day, I'll I'll go with the uh, the uh, miracle on ice. I always thought it's one of the great coincidences in American history that the miracle on ice happened on Washington's birthday, February twenty second, nineteen eighty. I know somebody who had uh, uh, ringside tickets and gave them away and went to a restaurant because they figured it wasn't going to be a close game. You worked for two American presidents. If you could have worked for any other president in our history, whom would it be? I'll take the easy route and say Abraham Lincoln. Uh, not just because of his greatness, uh, but uh, because of the, uh, uh, the times in which he led. What is the funniest movie of all time? Oh, Animal House. I mean, what's second? That's actually also my daughter Anna's favorite movie. So I don't know what that says about my parenting. I guess my cousin Vinny is, you know, honorable mention, but uh, that not a close call to me. Last question. If you had a podcast, who would you want to be the first person on your show? These days, I, uh, and I assume you're talking about, this is not one of those hypothetical. They have to be living right now, right? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. These days, I think it'd be this Israeli author, Yuval Harari, uh, extraordinarily provocative uh, writer, uh, I'll call him futurist philosopher, but uh, if you don't know his work, uh, uh, books like, one's called Species, one's called Homo Deus, I won't try to synopsize them for you here, they're, they're too complicated, but he is uh, truly brilliant, and uh, you'd, there'd be no shortage of of questions to ask him or, or uh, assertions you'd like him to explain. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. And I'd like to dedicate this podcast to the memory and legacy and humanity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest has been former Indiana governor and current president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at 
veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.